Hello, hello, hello. You are listening to the Travel is Dangerous podcast. My name is Michael, and I'm just going to give you a brief introduction. Um, my next guest coming up here is Mr. Wayne Everett. And so I hope you guys enjoy it. And thank you so much for listening and uh, for the support. Yeah, man. I hope you guys are all doing great and have a good day. Everett, um, I'm a songwriter, musician kind of guy. And uh, uh, some of my bands have been uh, called The Prayer Chain, um, Lassie Foundation, um, Kush, um, Starflyer 59, and some others and then i've also done um, some solo work i have um, my latest solo album just came out it's called two ghosts um, i have an earlier solo record called king's queens that came out a long time ago now but um, i'm excited about this new record and uh, hopefully everybody listening can take a look at it just go to wayneverett.com or check it out on spotify or wherever you listen to music and um, see uh, see what you think Perfect. And yes, I can second that. Um, it is a brilliant album. Um, it was really cool. I hit up a friend of mine who's, who's uh, been a musician. His whole family's full of musicians and things like that. And I was like, man, you got to check out this guy. And so he listened to it. And the first thing he texted back to me was, man, this is, this is how California sounds. Oh, wow. That's great. Wow. And, That's so neat. Yeah. And, and to me, um, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie, I'm 51 years old, but I'm, I'm fanboying pretty hard right now because your band, The Prayer Chain, for me was just, when I got to see you guys live, I'd, nev- I'd never heard you before. Um, I think the Neverland sessions were out, but I don't remember. Mm-hmm. And so I remember thinking, like, holy cow, these guys sound now. They don't sound like past t- you don't sound like something that was it sounded like the sounds that i was hearing now when i would turn on to um you know now they call it an alternative but back then it was college radio and then i remember hearing you know the wither wings um huge fan of mike knott and all those guys and so when i heard uh browbeats and i heard you sing wither wing it was like oh my gosh like i mean literally you got you got the voice of an angel good sir and, <laughs> that's very and generous so it just and so, like I said, I, I've, I've loved following your work throughout the years. Um, I read a, an article, not an article, but I'm on the 77s page, and Mike nodded, said something about another band, but he said, yeah, they're my second favorite. And he said, my, my favorite Christian band is the Prayer Chain. <laughs> and, and I just thought that was really cool for him to mention that. But I think the thing for me is I – I was raised in a, in a household to where I went to church um, and I listened to mostly secular. And so it was one of those things where my aunt would try and pawn off, um, you know, her, her albums, like, listen, this, these people are churchy and they'd be really good for you. Mm-hmm. And it was the first one she gave me was uh, Donna Godshow, whose husband was in the Grateful Dead. And oh, she, wow. she sang in there. Well, and, it was absolutely horrific. <laughs> it was those things where it was like, oh, you're, you're adorable. Thank you. Um, but then I started to, I had a youth pastor who got me turned on to the choir. Um, and, uh, and then I had a buddy, uh, John, who got me turned on to the 77s and Daniel Amos and things like that. And so that was kind of my, like, holy cow, there's really good stuff out there. And then, like I said, when I had heard you guys, 
Um, my friend sent me a copy of the Neverland Sessions, and I was just like, man, this is fantastic, um, and have just loved everything you've done. And so, like I said, I'm I'm trying to keep it down, but like I said, I've I've always really really loved your artistry. Um, just the fact that you know I can. I'm trying. I'm trying to think of the word here, but but I, I I've just loved everything you've done. Oh man, thank you so much. You know, and thank you so much for the support over all these years. It's so rad. Um, yeah, man, thank you. I mean, that's really kind, generous words. You know, it's it's funny how like you know, uh, in those days, you know, I mean, being a Christian rock band is a is a terrible you know label because it's just it's. And we knew it at the time too, because that's the perception that most people have of Christian music is it's, it's terrible and largely they're right. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and we felt the same way, you know? And so when the prayer chain was looking for like record deals and stuff, we were trying to shop our stuff all around. We, you know, it wasn't really our first choice to be in the Christian music scene. It wasn't really, our, it wasn't really an interesting prospect for us because we wanted our music to be, you know, out there to the widest audience possible. But, you know, there weren't any takers in, you know, amongst the the regular record labels. And so, um, but we had a lot of interest in the Christian music scene. And so we were just like, well, I guess we can do this. You know, it's it, we're not like, a, you know, we're not like against it for any particular reason, but it was, wasn't our, you know, wasn't our career path, you know, so to speak. But, um, but I'm glad with the way things turned out, you know, we got a, a really um nice deal and and ha had all the creative freedom that we um could wish for which you know we're um, always uh, will be thankful to um to reunion records for that because um they just let us do whatever we wanted because they they honestly didn't get what we what we did but and so to their credit they just said you just do your thing you know so um so that was really cool and, and um you know, but it was very weird being in a, in that music scene because it, it was for for as much as for us, like growing up in Southern California, like, you know, there were a lot of the a lot of the the, the bands that were, you know, kind of the better bands, you know, in that in the that scene were, were from here or around here. And um, and so, you know, for us, like going and like uh you know our experience of that of that music scene you know here was was a certain kind of thing but really going on the road for us was a real eye-opener because it was just a it was just very strange it was a very strange experience for me personally because it was just like there was a very you know just so many people like oh i, I you know my parents don't let me listen to to secular music and i was like what what do you mean it's <laughs> like what are you talking about? You know, we're so as the more that we, we understood that, the more that we really felt like, God, we need to like, you know, we need to turn some people on to some of this good music, you know? And so there's a, there's a big rock festival in Illinois called Cornerstone. And it's like a, um, and so the first time that we played that, you know, I think, I don't know if our record had come out or first record had come out or, or first like big release had come out or not. I, I don't remember. But anyway, we uh, so we were like, OK, you know, what we're going to do. We're going to let's start with a James Addiction song. We'll just start with a James Addiction song and just, you know, and nobody will know it because, you know, most of these people probably, have, you know, never heard it before, <laughs> you know. 
And but we we felt like it was our mission to to bring this music to people. And so we came out and we played um, this song called Up the Beach by Jane's Addiction, which, yeah, you know, is just, a, you know, which we love. And, and um, you know, that was one of our huge influences at the time. And so, uh, you know, and, you know, it blew the doors off the place because it's such a bitchin' song, you know. Yeah. And so uh, and so from there, you know, I think it set the tone and and um, and, uh, you know, people, you know, luckily you know kind of um took to us a little bit um from that point on and i think that's the really cool thing and i've i've always appreciated that i had seen the choir and he said you know he said um he said they actually did a really great cover of i think it was who'll stop the rain or um or have you ever felt the rain it was either one of those songs by CCR and it was oh, cool. yeah. I was working at this camp and, and it was a, and it was a Christian camp, really great place, but it was hilarious because you had those people like me that, you know, branched out in all sorts of musical directions. Um, and then we had, you know, the other folks that were just like, you, they did what they covered a CCR song. Like, are you kidding me? And it was almost like they were, you know they were they were on the primrose path to hell because they covered a CCR song. Yeah, it's weird. It's just it's weird, and it's and it's, it's just that's, that's exactly the, and that's just the that's just what the what that scene is. It's just the it's run by a lot of it's. There's just so many people in that scene that have a very narrow view of what music is allowed to be, and it just doesn't make any sense. Which is why ultimately, you know, in the that band, the Prayer Chain, which is why we made a, an entire album about alienation. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it was that we just didn't, we didn't belong in that scene. It wasn't really a, a place for us because we didn't agree with the, what the vast majority of people there, we had our friends and our, especially our music friends who, you know, we agreed with and we all, we all saw the world in roughly the same way, I suppose. But there was a large majority of that scene that was, we just did not relate to at all and could not understand. And so it was a really weird feeling. And, you know, and that was just the way that that went. But, um, but uh, you know, inspiration for music, I guess. Yeah, and and I remember, like, you know, it's funny because I remember, I think the first, like, real concert that I can remember seeing was I saw Randy Stonehill and Leslie Phillips in Paradise, California, like, the night of the uh, 86 Super Bowl. <laughs> why i can remember that but i just remember like our youth group going and i remember like being like super stoked because um i think it was either leslie phillips or randy stone maybe maybe both of them had tim tim chandler on bass oh wow mm-hmm. and i remember thinking in my head like I, I remember like nudging my friend john i'm like dude he's from daniel amos and being like super stoked and it was hilarious because i remember you know of course at the time leslie phillips was just doing the cookie cutter stuff mm-hmm she was you know all about that and then i had a friend that i the same same camp that i worked at um my buddy russ who actually was doing the booking for the choir um back in the 80s and actually his wife's second um his excuse me his secretary's husband was tim chandler oh wow so Mm -hmm. so russ knew all these guys and he was telling me he said Leslie just fought for creative control for so long. And finally, when they gave it to her, it was almost like she was, she was bashed for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think one of, 
I mean, well, really, I think was the only album that I even owned before she became Sam Phillips was uh, The Turning, which was produced by her then husband, T-Bone Burnett. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that to me, there were so many people that scorned it. Like, have you, have you heard her newest album? And I yeah. was like, it's fantastic. But I feel like, just like you said, where <clears throat> Reunion Records did that with you guys, I, I still feel like, you know, the late 80s, early to mid 90s, I think a lot of these companies were finally allowing uh, a sound to be able to be heard that, that was just like, I wasn't ashamed to play that stuff in front of my friends. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, like, a, Oh man, like, Hey, what's this band? Like, Oh, they're Christian. Like you wouldn't like them. Like I just have them because I have to kind of a thing. Like it was like, no way, man. Like, Oh, do you got to hear these guys? You got to listen to this. Like, this is some really good stuff. And 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 I felt like, uh, like you said, a lot of the labels back then weren't weren't too narrow minded on the creative control. And it's funny because I worked at a Christian uh, record store, and it was absolutely hilarious because it was in the Bay Area and across the street we had um a Rasputin Records. Actually, we had a oh lady yeah, love that place. And it was absolutely hilarious because some lady came in. <laughs> And she t- says, <clears throat> so my son's really into Marilyn Manson. And what would you suggest that's really close to that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, that was, I, yeah. mm-hmm. I just shook my head and I was like, ma'am, honestly, there's, there's nothing out there. And she was in, she was almost taken aback and she said, well, where do you shop at? And I pointed across the street and I was just like, see that amoeba over there? Yeah, that's where I get all my music from. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I I can't. I can't do this stuff. I I, I love the worship. I love the stuff that's, you know, that's heartfelt, like the choir, like you guys, like stuff that lyrically just goes so deep. But I I can't do the cookie cutter stuff, and I never have been able to. And it's been the bane of, you know, working at camps, working in bookstores. I'm like, I I can't do this stuff. And Mm -hmm. so I said, I just, I found your music so refreshing again the mike rose the the hindalongs the doherty's all those guys their stuff was so refreshing because it was the sounds of now but it wasn't it wasn't the cookie cutter garbage that we were getting thrown yeah well that's cool man thank you yeah i'm I'm glad to be a part of that you know i'm so glad that you mentioned tim chandler i don't know if you know if people aren't familiar with with him he's just super talented musician um bass player for so many really great groups and uh, i'm just feel so lucky to have known him a bit you know i got to um hang out with him when you know hanging out with the choir going on when I, especially when i went on tour with them one time i played percussion for them on one of their tours and so um so i got to to know tim really well uh, during that time and and he's just such a really sweet guy and it's you know he he, he passed away as it's really uh you know a real void for the world because you know he was such a a talented person and such a and such a sweet generous nice guy like i mean just you know you know the cliche is gentle giant you know and he was a big guy mm-hmm. but like you know he was he was genuinely like a just a very sincere kind generous man and uh and i miss him 
But uh, yeah, people should check out, you know, all of his work with, you know, the choir, Daniel Amos, all of those um, projects that he worked on, because um, there's some really quality stuff, especially, oh, and, and also he played on um, um, uh, Steve Hindelong's first solo record called Skinny that I produced, and he did some insane stuff on that. I got to watch him work in the studio and just the way that he would be so intuitive with it like he he would know the chords and stuff but then he would he would purposefully try different things every take that he did and i don't know if he did this with all of his projects or not if that was just his process but he would just he would he would do a different take on something like by the uh, with the next pass of something and so if you really loved a part you really had to tell him because and he would totally remember it but you really had to tell him because otherwise he'd be just like yeah man i can totally you know i can just like these come so easily to me i can just keep doing it i'll do a different one you know and it was so cool and it really brought like especially for that project it brought like a real um vitality to some of those songs that um uh, that Steve, uh, you know, Steve's influences, you know, a lot of like very kind of mid-tempo, you know, um, uh, uh, Fleetwood Mac and, and uh, you know, uh, Neil Young and, and some of those, you know, songs that, that tend to be kind of more mid-tempo-y. And that was kind of what he did for, for that first soul record of his. But then Tim came in with his bass and really gave, he really punched it up. And it was so cool to watch him do that. And so uh, I'll always remember that. That's really cool. And then, because you, you toured on the, um, oh gosh, I can't think of the name of the album. Free Flying Soul. Yeah, Free Flying Soul. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then I remember, and it was funny because the other day I was talking to Jeff about this, um, Jeff Elpel, and I said, it's so funny. I said, I've, I've listened to Wayne's album quite a few times, and for some reason, I'd never picked up on Skinny. And oh. Then, <laughs> and I was listening to it, I was like, wait a minute, you ding-dong, he's talking about Hindalong, and it's just such a great tune, but it was just really, really cool, and I just, I, I think fantastic that that friendship that you guys had, and it definitely goes both ways, and I, I love those stories of, of just people becoming really, really good friends and inspiring each other, and I think that that's, I think that's the one cool thing about, you know, these bands that we've been talking about, is they're not so proud to be like, no, we're not letting this guy in or I can't believe anything like that. I just, I've always appreciated that about the few bands we've been discussing that they're not too proud to say, Hey man, like let's bring this guy on and have him play and let's get him out on a tour with us and, you know, just have him join the family kind of a thing. Um, You know, kind of like what they do with, well, you know, perfect example of that is, is uh, Steve with, um, with the lost dogs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, after, after Gene passed, yeah and i just thought man what a fantastic addition to it and i just think that's i think that's really cool he was like oh i'd love to yeah it's really cool you know to see like um those those guys they're um you know those guys are all like mentors of mine you know because they're such good songwriters and their work is so strong and it's been so strong for so long you know Mm -hmm. and especially like you know for me and and steve he's he's just he's such a talented songwriter lyricist um you know drummer of uh and so for me he was just like a real mentor you know and when we were working with him um with the prayer chain it was just 
you know, we were just two birds of a feather kind of, you know, the stuff that, that I was into, he was into and vice versa. And, and we just talked a lot about, you know, um, about, you know, percussion and, and our love for, you know, polyrhythms and, you know, different kinds of stuff going on and, you know, um, hitting a drum that hadn't been machine made, but had been made by hand by somebody. And it just, there's just, you know, there's, yeah, it seems kind of, you know, it's a little played by now, but it's like at the time it's like, you know, you go to a music shop like guitar center and it was just replete with all of these like machine made percussion things. And they, they just, they look stale, they sound stale. And Mm -hmm. here I've got this thing that, um, that I picked up in a, in a, you know, what they called a world music store, which had like, you know, mandolins and zithers and goofy things and, and a Turkish guitar that, that we ended up getting and all this percussion stuff and all this stuff that, that had been, it was in there was like very, very, very like unfinished. And, you know, clearly somebody had made this thing by hand, you know, and, you know, I just really, I felt like I really wanted to, it sounded cool also, which was, you know, of course, the reason why I picked up the stuff. But then it was just kind of like, I don't know, it just felt like kind of honoring this person who had like, who had made this thing Mm -hmm. and wanted somebody down the line to pick it up and play it on something and mean something by it. And so for me and Steve, that was just like something that we really bonded over was the value of that kind of an instrument. And I know it sounds kind of, you know, uh, I don't know if it sounds kind of maudlin or whatever, but it's like, it just, it's, it's very, it was just a, uh, just a way of like thinking about, you know, instrumentation that was just, you know, I don't know, for me at the time was just a little bit more, uh, had a little bit more value than just your standard like okay let's pick up something that's going to make a big high sound and let's pick up something that's going to make a big low sound and you know just kind of do a checkbox kind of approach mm-hmm. to music where it was like what does this sound like Ooh, that's an interesting sound let's buy that I don't know what we're going to use it on but yeah, let's just try <laughs> it you know and that was exactly what we did and and um, we um, we did that for we did we did a shopping trip like that I think before we did the um, the prayer chain did the uh, this the album the called shawl yes and um, and so we did we put some of that stuff on there but then a lot of that stuff ended up happening on Mercury um, and I I still have a couple of those pieces laying around somewhere but some of them have disappeared over the years but you know those those pieces are so you know important to me because it's like uh in the sense that like they they were made by somebody by hand they wanted somebody to to, you know put it to music and uh and 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 we did it and um i'm just glad that um that that thing and that intention that that whoever that person was finally came to fruition so um, I don't know. It's just kind of a cool part of making music that I like is just those little kinds of, you know, stories like that. No, absolutely. I think, I think what's cool is when you were even talking about that, like it kind of brought to mind, um, I think the, uh, at the foot of the cross, like volume one, I think it is, is I felt like Steve used like a ton of different percussive stuff mm-hmm. when yeah. doing the album. And you could really tell like he took a joy in it. Yeah. And I think the same thing, even um, I used to have the uh, 
the VHS of, of you playing with them at Cornerstone. Oh. And, and I always felt the same way, like watching you play and watching Steve, you know, just kind of play off of each other. And it was just really cool to watch that. And I think that that's, um, I think you've really hit the nail on the head. Cause I mean, I, I grew up to where, you know, if I heard an acoustic guitar, I was ready to throw that thing. Like I, I just wanted electric, um, you know, I was into Aerosmith and Zeppelin and, and all that stuff because of, because of my older brother. Mm-hmm. I hated that acoustic sound. I was just like, man, those guys are pansies. <laughs> and then for whatever reason, um, a, a friend of mine and I were talking and, and somehow I went out and I bought James Taylor's great hits when I was mm. like 20 years old. And I remember thinking like, you know, cause hair metal was really big at the time. I mean, I think I picked up the album like in 89 or whatever. And so it was still that heyday, you know, everyone's doing the Yngwie stuff and, <laughs> it's it's time it's place that's fine but for me to hear someone play something on on an acoustic and just make that thing sing just as much as their own voice and i that's where it really kind of started me going back and saying like okay i'm not gonna check out neil young and i'm gonna have to check out these other guys that are just doing this you know just simple what you know what what people would say would be but just the guitar and their voice. And I think for me, like that's sometimes where I try and um, I have a 12 year old daughter and she loves to sing. And so I try and play her some of the older Beatles stuff like Blackbird or um, whatever the case may be. And just say, can, can you hear that? Can you hear that sound? You can hear him strumming. You can hear, you know, the inflection in his voice kind of a thing. And I've always appreciated that about guys that, that can do both sides of the coin, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's, it's just a, you know, there's some people who are really, you know, attuned to a certain craft and, and maybe, uh, you know, I probably just don't have the discipline for it. Cause you know, I, I didn't finish my piano lessons. I didn't really finish my drum lessons, you know, and then I just kept playing the drums, you know, in high school and stuff. But I, I should have been a, you know, a better drummer, but I just didn't have the discipline for it. And, you know, so, uh, you know, I got bored with that or didn't get bored with it. But as I was doing that, I was like, oh, I should play something musical. So I picked up the ukulele because, well, being lazy, I was like, well, four strings are going to be easier to learn than six. (laughs) So, you know, that kind of crap, you know, so, so I, you know, I'm I'm sitting there playing like simple mind songs on the, on the ukulele and it just sounds stupid, you know. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. The alarm, I'm playing alarm songs on the <laughs> ukulele. It's just dumb, really dumb, and it sounds bad too. And so it's like you know, just like just that kind of stuff. It's like, uh, but then I you know picked up the guitar sort of rudimentarily, and so I, and I still I use it to write songs. But I'm I'm definitely no guitar player by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so it's it's a little bit of a kind of a jack of all trades, master of none, but. Um, but I do know, you know, there's certain people who, who are those people, um, you know, Jeremy Wood, who maybe some folks who are fans of the prayer chain might recognize his name. Um, he was played percussion for us, um, on, uh, the Mercury tour and, um, and he, uh, also played drums on the, uh, on, uh, Hello. Hello there. Hey, I don't know what happened. I, there was, all of a sudden there was an ad that came up. 
And then I heard you talking over the ad, but the ad was super loud. And I was just like, hello, is anything? I don't know. Maybe because it was a, I don't know. I don't know why that happened. Is it like a time limit thing or something? No, I've, because the last one I did with my buddy, Jared, we went for two hours almost. I, um, yeah. So, all right. (laughs) So I think the last part that I had heard was when you were talking about Jeremy Wood. Oh, oh yeah, Jeremy Wood. He's you know he um, he's one of those people who is a multi instrumentalist and he's really good at everything because everything that he gets into he learns backwards and forwards. So it's it's so amazing to 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 be around him and to listen to him, you know, be musical because um, he's just so good at all of it. He has such an amazing ear for it. Um, his mother's a musician and he, but he just has like a, just a, an amazing ear and just, uh, a, I mean, he, you know, all of his friends, uh, you know, we, we, all, we talk about like, well, you know, it, you could give Jeremy like any instrument and give him a weekend. And by the end of the weekend, he'd, he'd be at least competent with it. If not like on like the above average kind of scale, Jeez. you know, he's just got an ear for stuff. He's got the, the physical ability to just master an instrument so um yeah so those those folks are are unicorns and he's one of them (laughs) yeah that's that's really cool man i um so my question one of my questions for you was it was your family musical growing up at all my uh my grandfather um uh on my mom's side um my mom's swedish and my grandfather he played bugle in the swedish army Oh, before wow. before he came over to um, the United States, and then he settled in in Minneapolis, where um, my grandmother had had done the same thing years before. She had come over when she was about twelve. She went through Ellis Island. Can you imagine like putting a kid on a on a boat from Sweden in like the nineteen twenties, and like just like yeah, just go to New York, and then like you know somebody put a pin on her with a letter that says like please send her to Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it was just like one of those things. Anyway, they um, they met there, and, and my grandfather was a um, he was a, a violinist, okay. and he played in the folk uh, the folk dancing group in um, uh, there in Minneapolis, and he also sang in the um, the Swedish uh, men's choir in Minneapolis as well. And then um, they moved out to Los Angeles um, during the depression because he got a job offer out here. And so he continued to um, to play in the you know the Swedish folk dancing group out here and um, and uh, and also in the Swedish male chorus out here as well. And he also made um, violins. He, he also made violins um, in his workshop. Oh my god! His, his day job was making airplane parts or patterns for airplane parts. But um, he um, he made uh violins and and so before he passed away he made sure to make all of his grandkids a violin wow and so um so i played that violin on um the mercury album um there's a part in um grilliad the song called grilliad that's at the end where there's like um at the uh where there's like a big sort of noisy screeching kind of a thing and 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 that was that that violin but but morfar is um is what we called him Morfar was um, my grandfather was a uh, he was just he was really um, musical. He was always like, you know, you know, telling me, you know, you need to keep singing, you need to keep playing music, you know, and um, 
and he uh, he was always very encouraging. My mom um, uh, wasn't musical, but she loved music, and she turned me on to like um, you know Stevie Wonder and, and James okay. Brown and and um, and uh, the Bee Gees, and of course we listened to ABBA because we're Swedish and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know at the time when i was young i didn't really appreciate abba and the bgs all that much i really liked um james brown and um and stevie wonder but um some of that pop stuff i didn't really like at all cuz when i came to um get into music i was much more into like you know punk rock and stuff you know when i became a teenager um but uh, yeah so but not musical in that way my my father was um he was uh not musical but he 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 did have a liking to for like um stuff like the four freshmen and he liked like the um the sort of the singing cowboys guys like Gene Autry and Sons of the Pioneers and Bob uh Willis and and those kinds of folks okay yeah that's really cool so then how old were you when you started taking piano lessons then oh i don't know i I took it for, I don't know if it was like six months or a year or two years. I'm not really sure how long it was. Oh, wow. Okay. It was like, it was sometime around like, you know, I was like nine or 10 years old or something like that. And I just didn't, I didn't have the discipline for it. Cause I, I don't know, we were, I was learning things that, uh, that didn't really resonate with me. And I stuck with the drums more because my teacher, um, I was a teenager and my teacher said like, Hey, bring in your cassettes, you know, bring in a cassette and we can, you know, we can work on you playing along to it and I can help you do that, which was brilliant because it's like, that's why you pick up an instrument is to play like the things that you love to hear. Yeah. And so he was like, yeah, bring in this, these tape, bring in some tapes or whatever. And so, um, so at the time I was really into, I, I, I had just gotten into U2. And so I, I, I brought in um, U2's live album under blood red sky and um, which I had been playing nonstop at the time because uh, it had just come out. And so, um, so yeah, so that was like, you know, that was really like a, a huge thing. Cause then he showed me how to play some of those things. And so that was really exciting. It's interesting to read like on Larry Mullen Jr. and how much he didn't know how to play when they first formed. And it's it's crazy to me. Like, I mean, he's, you know, he's he's come such a long way, even in those first few recordings. I mean, shoot, like, I mean, I remember we we all tried to play along with um, Sunday Bloody Sunday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you felt, you felt good doing it on the snare and the and the kick. But then when you're trying to add in that hi-hat, you were like, Oh, never mind. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it, but what I I think maybe what I what I realized later, um, and maybe what I was learning at the time by trying to play his stuff was and and recognizing all of his patterns was that they were very deliberate. Like there were parts, mm-hmm. you know. It wasn't just like oh, I'm just gonna play like this sort of generic part and then just kind of like, you know, fumble along as I, as I go through the song, it's like every section had its own thing, you know? And I realized that later. Um, but yeah, he was very thoughtful in terms of like the, the parts, you know? Uh, and I love drummers who play to the song like that. Like um, I think a master of that is, um, is Tommy Lee actually. 
you know, people don't think of they people think of Tommy Lee as like just this flamboyant kind of kooky dude, but he was so purposeful with his parts. If you listen to that um that first uh 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 that first Motley Crue record and when he's pl- that stuff that he's playing on on Livewire, that is purposeful, you know. He's he wrote all of that shit out like on purpose, you know. He did not there's not like a he he wasn't really like freelancing on that stuff those were parts every hit is something that he planned out and you can hear it and it's amazing and uh and i love drummers who are like that that's i mean i got into like you know neil pert you know from rush at a time rest in peace to him damn you know he was amazing i mean i wasn't like the the biggest rush fan i was for a little bit like in high school but i certainly enough for uh, for enough of, uh, of time to really recognize like that guy as like a, a a songwriter like he he has parts on the drums they're very specific for each mm-hmm. section and each section builds on the next or takes a different take on it makes it interesting for the listener you know and you're just like you're still into it as the song goes on no matter how long it is you know it's a it's a real skill and i think you know it's something that i've tried to to do you know as a drummer in my life um, and a, as a songwriter, really, and it's it's funny you mentioned Neil because I'm I'm a huge Rush fan. So, I mean, I've I've shared this I think all of my. Actually, Jeremy Wood and I went to a Rush concert together. Yeah. <laughs> we went to the Forum here in Inglewood, in Los Angeles, and uh, I can't remember which. It was like on the Presto tour or okay. something. I can't remember which tour it was. Oh no, which one was? Yeah, it might have been Presto. I can't remember. Anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, and also he's the guy that you want to go see Neil Pert with because he's the guy who's going to sit next to you and go like, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you hear that? You know, I'm like, oh really? Oh wow. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's cool. Yeah. I, I saw them on the roll yeah. the bones tour and Primus actually opened up. Oh, you know what? That was it. It was, it was, it was on the oh, roll okay. bones tour. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Primus opening up. Yeah. That's crazy. I'm not a Primus fan really, but, um, but, uh, but what a rad, uh, era for, for Rush. And that, uh, that documentary, um, uh, that most recent documentary, uh, on them before Neil passed oh. away. So cool. You know, it's like those guys are like, they're so Canadian. They're so nice and they're so humble about what they've done. They've done so much in music and influenced so many people and made so many people happy. And, um, and they just couldn't be like more humble about the whole thing, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's just a real, I don't know, for me, it's a real like lesson in humility. No. And I think that's absolutely, you've hit the nail on the head. And I think that that's even what kind of like, um, I remember, gosh, this had to have been 2009, maybe. I don't, I don't remember when it was, but I first joined up on Facebook and they used to have this like concerts near you kind of a thing. And one of them mm. came up and it was just like the Lost Dogs. And I was like, what? Like the Lost Dogs are playing in Albuquerque because that's where we were living at the time. And I thought, mm. there's no way. And so sure enough, gave him a call and it happened to be a homeless center where Mm, they were mm -hmm. coming through on their route 66 tour. And so we showed up super early and I remember like walking in there and they were like, Hey, how's it going? Like just super, super friendly. 
And I remember telling, you know, Steve and Darren, I said, you know, I think this is weird. I don't know you, but I know enough about you. I said, because I'm really good friends with a guy named Russ Pate. And automatically, they just were like, no way, man. Come up, come on up here. And, you know, and we started chatting for quite a while about Russ and um, Terry knew Russ and, and uh, these kinds of different things. And then Mike and I started talking and it was, it was just like, I'd met Mike a couple of times when I saw him do a couple of the wild blue shows in Fresno, like in 91. But for me, it was just really cool because I mean, I've, you know, my wife is even telling me she, she used to go and see a lot of the bigger Christian concerts. And she always talked about how a lot of those guys were just real pricks in the sense of like, uh, you don't know who we are and we're just going to huh. go back and hang out and because we're, we're just above this kind of a thing. And it just put a bad taste. And with those guys, man, it was, they were carrying the conversation. Like, I mean, I, I, I felt so welcomed um, and just, you know, and, and it was even funny, even putting together this list of like who I wanted to, um, to have on my podcast. I was just like, well, shoot, I'm just going to, I kind of took a page out of uh, Dave Grohl's um, Sonic or uh, Sound City when he was talking about how he sent off these emails to a bunch of people that had worked there and kind of was just like, if I hear back on any of them, I'm just going to be stoked. And literally that's how I felt when I was just like, you know, what have I got to lose? I'll, I'll hit up Wayne. I'll hit up, you know, Sam Hernandez from Dime Store. I'll hit up, you know, these guys. And every single one of you said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And I was just like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and, and for me, it was just really cool. But I think that that's, that to me has always stuck with me was, was just when I've met, you know, a lot of the guys that I've really enjoyed over the years, they've been nothing but kind. Um, now, one guy I will tell you who wasn't so kind was I met, uh, I saw Cracker. If you've ever heard Cracker. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, what's his name? Uh, um, good, good old uh, David Lowry. Oh, yeah, Johnny, yeah. Johnny yeah. Hickman. Johnny Hickman was the supreme gentleman, nicest guy in the world. David had to have been having a bad day. <laughs> I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I was like, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, and that, and that actually does happen. You know, it's like, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've been on enough tours, and, you know, when you're out for a certain amount of time and, you know, you – you show up to a place and it just feels like sometimes you're just having a bad mm -hmm. day, you know, and you just don't, you just don't feel like, you know, talking to people or you don't feel like, you know, uh, it's just in the best mood. And so you're not just as chipper as you should be, you know, uh, you know, towards people who've paid a bunch of money to come and see you. And, and, you know, it's hard sometimes to like, just, you know, feel uh you know on you know as they say mm -hmm. it's like it's it's hard to be on um that consistently especially for artists who are creative people and who are <laughs> probably more than the average person you know prone to you know bouts of depression mm -hmm. and bouts of just like you know inconsistency in terms of like mood so um uh, so, you know, I, I feel for those moments. I mean, I had a similar kind of experience when I went and saw the church. Uh, a friend of mine um, uh, is, a, is a visual arts um, professor. Actually, he, he directed a, a video of mine um, called Prisoners, which off of this record, Two Ghosts, 
um, he, uh, he also serves as like a uh, um, the head of um, the media arts department of LA Mission College. His name is Curtis Stage. Anyway, Curtis um, uh, had a student um, a while ago who was uh, the church's um, like videographer, basically. He would go with them on tour and like film all of their shows and stuff. Anyway, through this guy, um, Curtis got, he and I, you know, backstage passes and stuff. And so we got to go and, you know, meet like all of the guys in the band and stuff, which I, for me, of course, was a dream come true because I was a big, huge church fan. And, um, you know, uh, Marty Wilson Piper was super cool to me and really nice. And then Stephen Kilby was just like, he was just, he was just in a sour mood, you know, he was just, you know, the, the crowd wasn't as big as he expected. And I was like sitting there being all fanboy. I was like, man, love your music, man. He's like, you know, my friends and I, we, you know, we all love your music. And he's like, where are they? <laughs> and I was just like, I was like, oh shit. <laughs> Like, I was like, like, I don't know, man. I mean, they got kids and stuff. They're at home. I don't know. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's funny even hearing you say that, too, because I don't think I, well, I did missions for a while and we, I was part of a, it's kind of funny. I I used to run sound for a group called Team Extreme. um, And they're the big breakers and all those guys. And I enjoyed it, but nothing in the sense of, you know, touring uh, like a band, but I mean, we did tour, we did that whole gig and I get it. Cause there were times to where we'd roll up and people would want to know like, Oh, like, what do you do? What do you do? There were, where, um, well, I mean, even read, you know, Mark Solomon's simplicity where he talks about her, him and Dirk Lemon. He's just getting into it, you know, in a church. And it was, and it was almost like that kind of a thing. And like I said, I've, I've never been on the extreme end of it. Like you guys are, or have been touring in that band and things like that. But, you know, I, I think even becoming parents, sometimes it's just like you get tugged on and tugged on and tugged on. And like, okay, enough already. <laughs> so I think the same thing of like, you know, you're, you're touring, maybe you've had it with, bad with a bandmate, or maybe there's something going on with your itinerary. Like, who knows? Um, you know, so I I always figure like, man, I just want to give grace. And like I said, I mean, he was he was a nice guy, but he looked tired, and I'm sure he was. And you know, it is what it is. I'm sure on a different day he'd be a lot sweeter. So, um, but you you and I were talking earlier via message, and um, you're a fellow lover of travel. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself like some you know travel expert and stuff, but I I do love travel. I mean, I. I, um, in college, I was, my major was intercultural communications. And, um, and so I, I did a lot of cultural studies. My, I did a thesis that was, uh, it was called, uh, understanding French perspectives on anti-Americanism. Mm. And, um, so I, and so for me, it was like, you know, I, when I, I first went to Europe the the summer after I graduated from high school and that really just opened up a world for me. And um, I was just fascinated by it, you know, by other cultures and, and trying to understand, um, you know, different ways of looking at things and, and, you know, um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess I do love, I do love travel, you know, I wouldn't say like, like I'm, I'm like, yeah, I need to go to like all the, the furthest parts of the earth yeah. or anything, but, 
but um i do, i do love um i love going abroad and and during this time it's such a bummer because nobody will take americans right oh. now <laughs> and and uh, not that i would want to go onto a plane for any reason that's just it seems yeah. you know like a real <laughs> uh risky thing that you should only do if you're you know if you absolutely need to but um yeah so i i mean it i do love travel and and uh and i'm a big francophile and i and french was my minor in college and so i speak french and um more or less not conversationally or conversationally but not okay. fluently um and um and uh yeah you and i were talking uh before via text and and I was like, well, I can share hopefully with your listeners that um, uh, about one of my favorite places that I only just discovered a few years ago um, was uh, this place in uh, the southern France called La Grande Motte, or as maybe anglicized would be like La Grande Motte. Um, and it's a uh, it's a beachside community on the Mediterranean, just uh, right next to Montpellier. Okay. Um, in the south of France, and it was built in the late 60s, early 70s, um, specifically by the French government because they wanted to um, discourage um, French people from um, constantly going down to Spain for all of their <laughs> summer tourist activities. And so they built this, basically this resort town right on the Mediterranean. And um, it's a rad, like, you know beautiful beaches and stuff like that and it's right there on the mediterranean and all of that stuff just like anywhere uh around there but it also just is a beautiful city because it's all it was all built at the same time and it was all built with the architecture is all built with a specific theme okay. and i i can't remember the name of the architect but it's all um if you google la grande Meute, you'll immediately see these pyramid looking apartment buildings um, and they look, I guess they, they were inspired by um, the Mayan uh, pyramids. And so um, they have these like beautiful, like, you know, yellow, orange, white, um, very late 60s, early 70s, you know, laughing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> kind of, you know, vibe. And it's awesome. It's so beautiful. And I, we only heard about it, my girlfriend and I only heard about it because my um, uh, Swedish relatives who live in uh, Stockholm, they um, uh, they own a, a an apartment in one of those buildings as like a okay. summer you know vacation place, and now they're retired, so they spend a lot of time there now. But um, so um, so uh, my girlfriend and I were planning to go to Barcelona um, uh, to go and you know and and have a good time and stuff. And oh, actually one of the, re the the main reason actually was because our neighbor we were living in new york city at okay. the time this was this was like 2016 we were living in new york city and our neighbors uh are french were french and so they were like hey would you guys mind and we were very close to them um they said well hey you know would you guys be interested maybe in doing an apartment swap with our parents because our parents want to come and visit us. So maybe they could take your apartment and then you can go over there and take theirs. And we were like, yeah, of course, just tell yeah. us when, <laughs> you know? And so, so they lived in a, in a small town outside of Toulouse. 
And um, and so we decided to fly into Barcelona because it's closer than flying into Paris. Okay. And so so we flew into Barcelona, spent a few days there. It was awesome. Rent a car. Never, I had never been to Barcelona before. Oh, my God. Amazing. Lovely place. And so then we drove up to um, Toulouse. But on the way, in the meantime, I had talked to my Swedish relatives. And I was like, are you guys going to happen to be at La Grande Mutte when we're, like, you know, around the same time? And they're like, yeah, actually, we will be. And I was like, this is amazing. Perfect. So on the way we went and stopped at La Grande Motte and uh, just hung out with them for the day and just had an amazing time sitting on the beach and hanging out in their apartment and just living that like, you know, that Mediterranean, you know, coastal life. And it was, I, I can't recommend it enough. And, you know, my girlfriend was like, don't tell them about the place. Don't do it. You're going to ruin it. There's going to be a bunch of people that are going to go there now. <laughs> That's hilarious. So I'm trying to think. I think I think the first major trip I took out of the States was I went to um to Brazil back in two thousand one and we were down in Joinville, which was a, a little German spot. And yeah. uh, mm-hmm. absolutely beautiful. Really, really artsy town. Um just a lot of really cool stuff around the area there. Absolutely loved it. And then now, was that was that a German town because of, you know, the Nazis who had <laughs> fled? You know, I never found out, but I was always curious, though, about yeah. that, because, yeah, I was that was kind of my thinking was just like, eh, I wonder mm-hmm. if this is uh, where this is coming from here. Uh, mm. But it was really cool. We were about an hour away from uh, what's called Curitiba. And so that was really mm-hmm. rad to go there. And then um, and then I went over to Europe, actually in the beginning of 2002 i've been over there a couple times actually i've been over there three times but the first time we went we went and um, hit the scandinavian countries so my mm. ears kind of perked when he said sweden we actually did um we stayed a week in lulio mm. did a week yeah. in uh Rovaniemi, finland and when we stayed a week in uh Tromsø, norway and wow. loved it loved all the areas um sweden was hilarious i got put in a host home and these these poor people didn't speak a lick of English, and I was really? I was wow. dead in the water. I was just like, "This is adorable." You've got this cute little four year old boy who's talking my ear off and probably can't understand why I'm not answering him on anything. <laughs> I just sat there and smiled, like, "Uh huh." And uh, but it was really really cool though, and I absolutely and I and what was cool is when you were talking about you know like you know the anti American thing, and I think I've said this before. I absolutely love our country. I'm, I'm thankful to, to to live in America and have the freedoms that we do. But but I'm with you, man. I, I think when I went out and to learn about other cultures, in, especially in Brazil, and, and hear about how they think of us as Americans and what they think of our country and our president and such and such. And, I mean, this is even, you know, directly right after, two th- you know, uh, 9-11. Um, mm. And even being over in Europe during that time and different things, you really – I think for me, it really broadened my eyes or broadened, broadened my, my, not my eyes, but you know, the scope of your perspective exactly, yeah. of just like, you know, we can have all, you know, we can disagree on certain things, but we can have these other things in common. And I think the really cool thing was going over there is I, I'd had friends that had been over there before and they, you know, a lot of people had really done much more traveling than I've, than I've even done. And they said, 
you know, when you go over there, man, take, take your time to learn from the culture, take your time to immerse yourself in it. And I had a friend from Australia that, that he really, uh, told me a lot about that. And we just, we hung out. Jason was one of my best friends. It was just really cool because he, he came over here and just kind of immersed himself in the American culture, trying to figure out different things. And, and we'd have really solid discussions. And I think that that was for me, just one of the biggest things was just like you said, yeah, broadening, broadening my horizons and just getting a different take and, and being able to say, okay, I can understand why you'd think this about us. We're not all like that. But I had a, you know, we went down to Brazil, one of my friends um, ended, ended up meeting a girl from there. But what he would do is all of us be hanging out at the base. We were staying in, in, um, you know, doing whatever. Well, Chris was going down local pool halls and he's learning, you know, he's, he's learning conversational Portuguese. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. one of those things where I was like, Tag gum, I really wish I would have had the forethought to, to do that because, you know, not, a, well, I mean, Chris landed himself a, a really sweet wife, but, but, but bigger than that though, Chris, Chris immersed himself in that culture and wasn't like some, braggadocio American going down there and be like, yeah, I'm from America. You know, people ought to sure. treat me like a God kind of a thing. Like he went down there and it, and it was just really, really cool. You know, and I think that for me just kind of like started off like anytime I go anywhere, you know, even in the States, I'm still trying to like, you know, like, Hey, so tell me about your town. Like, you know, tell me about whatever the case may be. Um, you know, I, I, you know, like I was telling my buddy Jared on last week's, episode it's funny growing up in california i grew up in norcal like up by you know chico and all that area and so Mm. it makes me laugh when you know the time it took us to get from from our house to sacramento is the same time it took to get you know all the way through the netherlands you're like (laughs) like wait a minute what like i'm in another country like i'm 15 minutes away from germany on the one side and 15 minutes away from belgium i'm a four-hour drive Mm. from france like you kidding me like this is unheard of where I'm from. So, yeah. Yeah. For me, it's really important for Americans because, you know, it's, it's a sad thing that, that Americans are taught that we're the center of the universe, mm. you know? Um, and it's just, it's, it's narcissistic. It yep. really is because we, we pretend like we don't need anybody else. You know, European countries, of course, they, they rely on a, a larger network um, and they're also closer together and smaller, like you just said. You know, but they're also more empathetic, you know, and they're also um, they also are curious about other people's cultures. And, you know, frankly, any other country in this world knows more about Americans than we know about their culture. You know, every single country in this world, I think you can say that about, you know, the average American doesn't know nearly anything about other countries, you know, and certainly not as much as they know about our culture. And I think it's important for every American to go and experience a different culture because it's, it's just, it will, it will really, you know, enrich your life and, um, and it'll challenge your thinking. Mm-hmm. It'll challenge you. Um, uh, and, you know, for me, it was like, you know, as an 18 year old, you know, just out of high school, I went and backpacked around Europe with a friend of mine who was a couple of years older and we just, you know, in 30 days, we cruised from like, you know, London, Paris, Nice, you know, Salzburg, uh, Munich, uh, uh, 
uh, Amsterdam, uh, you know, Copenhagen, you know, Malmo and Stockholm and, you know, all just like we just charged that mm-hmm. thing. And by doing that and talking to people and like uh, what your buddy did, just hanging out with, with, pe- with just running into people, you know, and just hearing their stories and talking to them, you immediately get a much more um, diverse perspective on what it means to be a human being on this planet, you know, and what are the things that we have in common? We all share a lot of the same things, you know. Uh, My father who passed away recently, you know, used to always talk about that. He's like, you know, we're all basically the same thing on the inside, you know. And um, and he was right, you know, uh, about that. Um, and I really, uh, I really believe that that Americans, you know, and I would like to myself also just to just go and and experience even cultures that I haven't experienced yet. You know, I, I was lucky enough to be able to go to to Asia one time in uh, for work in um, my day job in 2010, I went to Tokyo and I was there for six weeks and, and it was amazing. I mean, the first two weeks were scary and like, I was like, I was stressed the whole time because I didn't want to be that ugly American. And I was trying to fit in as much as a gaijin can and, you know, and all that stuff. But, um, you know, the rest of it was just nothing but wonderful experiences. And, great perspective on what it means to be a person of the world and especially going to um, the East. It doesn't have the same, you know, Western assumptions, the Western traditions that have been handing down through generation after generation after generation. You know, it's just a different way of thinking about reality. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's something to really consider and to think about, you know, and, uh, and uh, for me, as a as a student of of culture, um, I I feel like you know I don't know I just I can't like emphasize that enough, and uh, you know I try to to live that in my own life as much as I can. No, absolutely. I think that's a really cool thing, and and I hear you. It makes me just because, well, especially even with, um, you know, growing up in California. I remember, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm 51, and so. I remember hearing in high school and things after that of like, you know, these people from the South, they're going to come up, they're going to take your jobs. Um, you know, you're going to have to, we're, we're going to raise, you know, your taxes are going to be raised because you're going to be paying for their, for their health care and their food and their everything else. Yeah. Somehow it didn't and, really happen. Did it? And it's absolutely hilarious because now, you know, well, first off, my, my cousin's all married into, you know, Hispanic Latino community. And, and you just find out it, it, it's, it's the polar opposite. I have a really good friend um, that I used to work with named Carlos. And, and he told me, he says, it's funny when, when we came up here, he says, you know, he says, you hear the typical thing of like, man, you're just here to take my job. And he's just like, I don't, I don't think you understand the Latino community at all. He's just like, we're a very proud people. And he's just like, we're not here for a handout. And he's just like, and also I'd, I'd challenge you to look around the United States as a whole and see who you've got looking for the handouts. And it really yeah. does make you think, but you know, it's like I was telling someone like they put such a fear factor on it that it really made, 
you know, it makes you nervous, but then all of a sudden it's just like going out of the country really opened my eyes. Like, are you kidding me? Like, and it's, and especially as, you know, as someone who has their faith, it was just like, well, why wouldn't I want to help these people? This is kind of what I'm called to do. You know, take care. Of the yeah, business. for sure. And that's where my struggle mm-hmm. comes in is, is a lot because, you know, you know, you don't tow the party line or what that and all the nonsense that's going on there. But I just think it's just like, well, the part the party line is taking care of our fellow brothers and sisters, and it doesn't matter where they're from. Absolutely. And there are, you know, it's funny. It's like, you know, that was that seemed to be the prevailing view when I first got into Christianity as a teenager. Um, but, you know, as the 80s wore on, it became that kind of like that xenophobic, like because it was political, because it was purely based around that whole anti-immigrant and frankly racist yep thing you know that fear thing was was racism it was like you know oh my gosh we don't want those you know those brown people coming over here you know and it was just like oh they're gonna take your jobs it's like no they're taking jobs that you don't want you know for for me growing up in southern california and you know that was a constant thing down here i mean it was just constant Mm -hmm. and it was and the fact was was like you know when i got my first job when i was 15 years old I didn't go and work in a strawberry field, you know. I went and worked at a local gas station, mm-hmm. you know, because that was what I wanted to do or whatever. And, you know, I didn't none of my friends went and worked in the strawberry field, you know. They worked as like a, you know, at the grocery store or whatever, yeah. you know. They did whatever menial labor that they did. None of them went to work mm-hmm. in the fields. You know. So, you know, I don't know. Make of that what you will, but to me, that was clearly racist. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, and that was just the way that things were. And that was the whole, you know, the demagoguery of, of immigrants and the, dem- and the, the fear mongering that has, frankly, continued to this mm-hmm. day, you know, in different forms. And uh, it's, a, it's a bummer because it's, it's so transparent and it's so clearly... Uh, never materialized there was never any big flood of like immigrants coming and taking over everybody's jobs and all that (laughs) stuff none of that ever happened and we're talking about this was i remember hearing about this in the early 1980s it was like oh all this stuff's gonna happen it's like none of this yeah exactly you know weird yeah so anyway but um but yeah, from a from a cultural perspective, you know, uh, I'm I'm stoked to live in Southern California. You know, um, I'm really glad that I went and moved to New York. That was a that was a totally different cultural experience for oh, me man, too. I can imagine. Um, you know, I visited New York almost yearly for a number of years before I moved okay. there because I just loved visiting there, and I always thought like, well, this place is too fast for me. But I love visiting here and having like, you know, a couple of days or a few days to just kind of like hang out and go check some things out. But then at a certain point, I was like, well, you know, I guess I could live here if I really, you know, had the opportunity. And then a job opportunity opened up and and all of a sudden I was like, oh, my gosh, I guess I'm going to move to New York. And so I did. And and it was a wonderful experience. Again, it's like I I I. I encourage any West Coast person to go to the East Coast and experience, 
you know, some of the places there. And obviously, like, you know, Northern California and Southern California are different cultures, but, you know, not nearly in the same way and in the same proximity as like Boston and New York, Philadelphia or D.C. Those are all very distinct places in such a smaller Mm -hmm. space. Right. So it's like uh, it's a really wonderful wonderful place to be and um and uh uh just an exciting area right there along the atlantic uh seaboard i mean uh i don't know i mean i don't know how many of your listeners are out there but it's like it's such a cool cool place to be and i'm so glad that i did that um and uh uh, i still have my my winter coat the best investment of my life (laughs) <laughs> my girlfriend who i met actually just only a few months after i had arrived um um when we first got together and it became that first winter she was like no no no, you need to invest <laughs> invest in a good winter coat you will you will be thankful that you did that you know and so i was like okay yeah totally i will and it didn't take long for me to say you were absolutely yep. right and for all five years that I was there, I lived in that coat for three months or more uh, in the winter every single day. And then I uh, moved back to California in 2018, beginning of 2018. And, and that thing has been sitting in the closet since. I haven't pulled it out yet. No, it's, it's hilarious that you say that because I grew up in – so I grew up in the Bay Area until I was about 12, and then we moved up um, – about an hour and a half outside of Chico up in the mountains there on the backside of Mount Lassen. I don't know if you're familiar with that area. Um, and so it was funny because we would get tons, plenty of snow. Um, first year we were there, we had seven feet of snow the week before Easter. Uh, just absolutely insane. So it was hilarious because I went, my first major trip outside of California was I went and visited a friend. She went to Wheaton College out there in Illinois. And so... She told me, she said, hey, we're getting really cold. You know, you're going to want to pack a lot of socks. Make sure that you pack a lot of warm clothes. And I'm thinking to myself, like, yeah, I'm the kid that pegged his pants in high school, didn't wear the socks. or wore the socks. <laughs> like, how cold can it be? Like, I grew up in this. You watch too many Duran Duran Absolutely. Videos. And, and I froze, <laughs> but I looked good freezing. But there is a whole different breed of cold east of the Rockies than there is on the western side and man alive I realized what a fool I had been and that was even one of the first things that I remember thinking was gosh maybe the United States is a little bit bigger than what I give it credit for and maybe certain people know more than what I think I know because I was 19 so I knew everything um (laughs) <laughs> you know and so i just remember getting out there and, and freezing i had a friend that went to moody bible college um and so i took uh the metro and went and visited him, him and i just remember getting off of that thing stepping up out of the grand central there and hitting michigan avenue and thinking you're a flipping idiot like i didn't pack for any near this this kind of cold you know, and that wind just whips right off of, you know, whatever lake it is right there. Like Michigan, yeah. Michigan, yeah. Thinking like, and, and it was just like, yep, there, there's a vast difference. There is a wonderfully vast difference. And she's right. I should have brought socks. So. Yeah, that's one of the coldest moments I remember actually being on tour 
we rolled into Chicago and it was like November or something like that. And we're driving into town. And it's like blue skies. There's a bright sun and everything. And it's like, oh, this is cool. You know, we pull up, and we open the doors and we get out. And that wind coming off of Lake Michigan is just blazing. And we're like, oh, my God, we're freezing. <laughs> you know, just like everybody's just like cold. Just like, oh, my God. Yeah, I even had on like what I considered like a thick leather jacket at the time, but it just felt like it was blowing right through that thing. <laughs> yeah, I will totally. tell you the, the coolest I've ever been in my life though was was Finland. We were there um in the Scandinavian countries from I think like the middle of January of O two right until the middle of February. And holy cow, I I made sure to buy plenty of long johns. One day we were we were touring around and we were doing these school assemblies, you know, dead of winter, and a moron. I completely forgot uh, the bottom half of my uh, of my of my flannel. <laughs> oh <And> no! <laughs> I remember like, I mean, I'm I'm big, and I remember like trying to tuck my legs as much as I could. Rubbing them from free, you know, to keep them from freezing on this metal school bus that we were on. I I will never, <laughs> I will never take you know take for granted warmth <laughs> after that yeah. moment. Like I mean, I hate summer. I am not a. I, I don't appreciate the heat by any means. The best sleep I've ever had was in Sweden. Uh, we cracked the window open. It was forty below outside, but they had us on these like really comfortable futons. Really, really comfortable uh, down comforters, and it was absolutely amazing um, to get that kind of sleep. But yeah, it was hilarious. So I was just like, I, I'm not made for this at all. Speaking of Finland, um, so you know, you're a fan of Mike Rowe and 77s. Um, one time, one of the great pleasures of my musical life has been um, uh, one time, uh, I think. Uh, Mike was offered to go to Finland, you know, as 77s and play. And so, um, and I think the prayer chain, we were actually offered the same festival. It was a, in summertime, so it wasn't okay. cold. But, um, but it was like, you know, festival thing. And so Mike decided to, to enlist us, the prayer chain, as his backing. No band. way. So, yeah, and for me, this was completely terrifying, you know, <laughs> because, like, you know, Aaron Smith, uh, the drummer from 77s, is an insanely talented drummer, you know, uh, just all of his work is just so, uh, it's so wonderful, and it's so solid, and, you know, uh, you know, I immediately was in fear um, because I just, you know, I, I'm just not as good as him. And so uh, the whole time, so we didn't have any rehearsals. The The way that the schedule turned out that like we didn't have any time for rehearsals except or no, wait, I'm sorry. I think the prayer chain, uh, you know, instrumentally, we got to rehearse maybe amongst ourselves okay maybe once or twice before we left. And then we had one day of rehearsals with Mike and in Finland. And it was like, I mean, I was just scared to death. I was just so terrified, you know? 
and Mike was just all cool and mellow and he was just like, you know, what do you guys want to play, man? You know, what do you guys, what do you guys think? You know, what should we play? You know? And I was just like, you know, and I love, for some reason, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that, like of that, uh, of that kind of Roy Orbison tribute song of his, like called happy Mm -hmm. Roy. I love that song. And I was just like, maybe play happy Roy. And he was just like, yeah, sure, Wayne. Sure, whatever. That's fine. You know, whatever. That's cool. And so we did it. And but we, you know, we did a, a whole bunch of his songs. And uh, it was, it was. I, we, I think we pulled it off. I, I thought we pulled it off okay. You know, I, I think Mike was being generous when he was like, "Hey, man, you guys did great. You know, you guys did really good." But I think he was, he was, he was being generous, especially with me. I mean. Eric and Andy did great, but uh, I was, you know, I was not fit to step into Aaron Smith's shoes at all. It it, it is funny because when you think about, like, I didn't realize until much later, like that Aaron Smith was was the guy, you know, for Papa was a Rolling Stone um, with the Temptations, and I had no clue. I mean, I you know, because as a kid, you don't think. I mean. Well, you do, but you don't, though. I didn't, like I said, I, I just didn't know about it until later. I, I knew Aaron was phenomenal, but I didn't know that he was, you know, on that song. I mean, that's one of my favorite songs. Yeah. And so you just kind of find out. And I, and, and again, going even back to that, I'm not saying the music's not good, but I just feel like sometimes, like, I, I think I was telling you this. Um, I think I was talking with, uh, do you know who Joshua Laurie is? Uh, I've heard. I think I've heard the name. I'm sorry. I, I'm no, you're sure. fine. He he's the bass player for for uh, Not. Uh, mm, he's mm-hmm. he's one of the guys. And so we were talking, and I said it's really funny because he was mentioning the Verve, and mm, and it's yeah. funny because everyone, myself included, until I'd recently discovered you know their stuff from like the early. Uh, 90s and not you know the the big one that threw him off of of uh all over the charts um but it was in urban hymns yeah because we were talking about just um that style of music sorry i'm <clears throat> fading obviously <laughs> no no I'm problem to think of words here but i remember thinking to myself like man you know there's there's other stuff like this that it m- reminds me of and it was funny because he said, he says, if you like the verb, he says, man, you, you got to hear the prayer chain. And I was like, oh, dude, I love the prayer chain. And we started talking about Mercury. And, you know, I, I still feel like that's one of the most underrated records to come out of, of, of the scene at that time. Um, that, for me, was so groundbreaking in the fact of, like, I, I always felt like you guys just should have been huge. Um, Shaw was great. You know, I, I loved, um, you know, the Whirlpool EP as well. But, but man, it was just like, I really hope that album was just going to skyrocket you guys into like, like, see, I told you how good these guys were. And now look at them. <laughs> <laughs> and then the public said, see who these guys are. Yeah. <laughs> But it's just you know, and again, I think, it, I think unfortunately, a lot of a lot of the really great bands just poor got got poorly pigeonholed. 
and yeah well i mean as a as an artist you you are of course concerned about that but at the end of the day you know it's like like now for me like you know 30 years on it's like you know I, i'm 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 even more glad that we made those decisions at the time mm-hmm. You know, because we made the record that we wanted to make and we made the statement that we wanted to make and, you know, you take it or leave it, you know. Um, And uh, I think the reaction at the time, you know, we saw and we expected was like there were some people, you know, smaller part of our audience that were going to get it. And then there were other people who were not. And we knew that that was going to happen. And that's what happened. And, um, and we were comfortable with that. And, uh, and now for me anyway, you know, long time later, um, I'm still glad that we did that. And I'm still glad that we made those decisions because that was what those songs deserved and they, and they Mm -hmm. needed. And, um, so we just did whatever, you know, those songs needed at the time, you know, it, it would be really weird to, to try to like reimagine those songs now. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that that's, that's what's really great about the stuff that you're doing now is, is too good. Um, I, again, I can't say enough good things about that album and I will, you know, I, like I did with my buddy and um, I'm definitely going to plug your stuff as well at the end here. Um, just, we'll know, Thanks, you know, how great an album it is and just the Lassie foundation, uh, the Kush stuff. It was really cool hearing you mention that. I, um so long story short our our youngest has autism and so i have to kind of hide um my cds or things that might get thrown or broken or whatever the case may be Mm -hmm. so in our our lovely shout out i I kept thinking like where did i put all my cds um we have a an older vehicle but it's new to us and so it's got a really just a minute um and so I went out there and I hit my treasure trove of, of older CDs. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the greatest thing that I have. And so I had a point to all of this and it just went out the window. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, oh, gosh, where was I going? Oh, oh, well, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Anyways, it's just a it was that's what it was i found i found my two cush cds and i was just like oh my gosh like this is where they've been uh, and it was so exciting to get to throw those in and to listen to those again because it literally it had been years since i'd seen them um but yeah there's just some great stuff and and like i said i think that's been the really cool thing is just to rediscover the older stuff but also I mean, your album for me is is a breath of fresh air. It reminds me of, of you know, I Thank left you. California when I was 30, um, but just the sounds of it, I mean, just absolutely breathtaking. Uh, lyrically, just wonderful stuff on there. And I, I remember catching um, a little bit of an episode, and I don't remember who it was, but I think it was you and Steve and maybe Mike Rowe. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Talking yeah. about the lyrics and things like that. And and to me, I think like, you know, like we were saying about Hindelung, <clears throat> excuse me. He's such a prolific writer and he's just so deep, but I've, I feel the same way about you though. And I, 
and I like I said, I can't say it enough, man. Two Ghosts was one of those albums that um that really just kind of, kind of came out of nowhere for me. And I remember thinking like, man, it's been a long time. Like, I wish you would re release something as I'm sure you're probably like, man, I want to release something. Um, Cause I think <laughs> you said it was what, 15 years in the making, I believe. Well, yeah, it was, I mean, you know, if you, if you want to count like the very beginnings of the things that ended up on this record for sure. It, but it wasn't like I was starting to yeah. make a record at the time, you know, it was like, here's some ideas, here's some other ideas, here's some things I recorded, here's some other stuff, and then like, oh, here's some songs I recorded, and then it was like, well, what should I do? Oh, maybe I should put out an EP, and then I was like, well, I have these other ideas too, and then it was like, well, some of these ideas are kind of cool, so, I don't know, let's just like work on it a little bit more and make a full length out of it. Um, so it wasn't really, you know, a, a cohesive record, you know, sonically and tonally, you know, in the sense that like I had like an idea of like, oh yeah, this is all going to be songs about a certain kind of mm -hmm. theme or blah, blah, blah. But it was, uh, interestingly, I think it did turn out to be kind of tonally uh, in terms of the lyrics, uh, a, some sort of plays off of certain themes and then sonically, you know, even though I recorded them like over a long period of time, some of them I recorded in New York and uh, rehearsal studio there and in my apartments there, um, like two or three different apartments there. And then, um, you know, places here and uh, with uh, uh, Frank Lenz and uh, Jim Mills um, and, you know, just trying to like sort of you know finish off some stuff and and um you know really just like trying to like finish the damn thing and then frank uh, uh mixed the thing and really uh just did some magic to make it sound like it all actually you know had happened you know uh in a consistent mm -hmm. way um even though there have been like, you know, I engineered so much of the record and, you know, I'm not an engineer. <laughs> so, so, uh, I mean, I did some, some, you know, hard work and spent a lot of hours doing stuff, but not like a, a real engineer does. Um, you know, so, um, so it was, it was some mixing magic and also some mastering magic by Chris Colbert to, to make all of them um, feel like you know, um, they're in a, the same world, at least. Well, it worked. It's like I said, it, it's been one of the bright spots of 2020 for me, for sure. Thank you so much. That's really kind. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of it. I, I, it's, it's like a, um, it's a, you know, it's, every time you put out some kind of a, a thing, it's, it's always like a stressful time because you don't know how it's going to be perceived and, and uh, you want people to like it, of course, because if you didn't, then you would just sit in your garage, you know, forever. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really stoked at, at how it turned out. And, and um, you know, if anybody hasn't heard it yet, you know, have a listen on Spotify and all that stuff. And, you know, 
Um, if anybody is fans of the Lassie Foundation, we're going to be re-releasing um, our whole catalog um, remastered um, uh, in the coming months. So um, be on the lookout for that. Are you doing that on, on just Bandcamp? Are you going to put it on the other? Um, no, it's going to be, it'll be out on like Spotify and Apple and all of those things. Um, we're currently kind of mulling the idea of, of doing a vinyl thing, okay. probably, probably through a Kickstarter because we can't really afford to do it. Um, but, um, yeah, we'll figure out something. But, uh, anyway, if, if anybody's interested in that music that that's going to come out, uh, hopefully pretty soon. And, uh, and I've heard you know the masters of um uh pacifico and california the first two records of lassie okay. foundation and they they sound amazing so um so i'm really excited to to get those things out it was funny because my wife had said she goes i think i think i really want to get you a record player and i, <laughs> and I turned and i looked and i was like that's really sweet of you and i was just like however i don't really want to see my records getting thrown around the room <laughs> she was just like oh yeah good call <laughs> <laughs> yeah gotta keep them out of yep. reach because man i do i do love me some vinyl but yeah i was thinking about that and i was like man i feel like i'm taking a chance with cds but i'll shove them up all high on the old uh you know where i stash stuff so so we can't reach and throw it or whatever so yeah, but we're coming around. We're doing better with it. So, but yeah, well, good luck. I mean, that's a that's a difficult situation and a very you know, um, uh, very taxing and you know, very unique uh, you know needs kind of situation. Yeah, it's it's been a it's been a whirlwind of a ride for sure. I would have never seen it coming when we had our our first daughter she she showed up and she she was walking at seven months and taken off and had all sorts of vocabulary at one you know and and then hannah came along and she was just the most mellowest little thing and um she didn't walk until gracie hit three there's a year and a half difference so hannah didn't walk until she was a year and a half old um, and so we kind of started to notice some stuff and then they misdiagnosed her. And so she's, she's all, she's, she's got the greatest sense of humor, um, talks like a toddler. Um, but when she has her meltdown, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's hell. I'm not going to lie, but she brings so much joy to our family though. And, um, I say that she's sleeping <laughs> so. As a yeah. joke, but she, mm-hmm. but she is absolutely adorable though, and and and, and Gracie is is our twelve year old. She is just fantastic as an older sister, and she's she's seen so much. But she's we call her a little mother hen. Um, but I appreciate that, man. But yeah, it's just it it's just funny because you just kind of learn. You know, sometimes you know my parents will be like, "I can't believe you're laughing over that," and I'm like, "You know, it it, it is what it is." Um, Sometimes your dark humor comes up and out, and <laughs> for sure, about it, for sure, cry over it. I mean, you know, one time yeah. she grabbed my wife's laptop and threw it, and I jumped over our armoire and and caught it in mid stride. And <laughs> 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 my wife looks at me like I'm a blathering idiot, and I'm 
but because I'm a diehard San Francisco Giants fan. So I was like, did you see that? I was like, that was some beat cry action. I was like, I'm a shortstop. <laughs> you think, no, you're an idiot. <laughs> but, you know. That's awesome. So, but she's a good time and she loves music. It's so cute because um, this is hilarious. My wife can't stand Rush. She is, her and I are, when they say that opposites attract, they were, they were not kidding. She was third day, DC talk, all that stuff. Um, you know, like, I can't believe you don't like this. And I was like, oh, well, there's other things that I can't believe you don't like. But, you know, <laughs> that's here, yeah. mm-hmm. well, the funny thing is, is for some reason, um, I put on Rush in the vehicle one time and I was just like, hey, Hannah, do you like this? And she's like, yes. And, she, you know, and she, you know, she's staring cute little way like, who is this? And I was like, it's Rush. And the song is called Tom Sawyer. So, for like, literally <laughs> a month straight, we would get in the car. And I would say, what do you want to listen to, Hammy? And she'd say, Rush, Tom Sawyer. <laughs> we'd be doing that <laughs> and we set up this little bowling alley in our hallway because um, she just absolutely loves to bowl. And so we'll turn on music and and um, let it kind of ride. So I put on Rush for it, and she got the biggest grin. She turned around and looked at my wife. It's like, Mom, Mom, Rush, Rush. And my wife is just just grinning at me like, you dirty of a gun. Like, like. Really, <laughs> like you've turned our daughter into a fan, but it's so cool because it's it's moments like those to where, you know, as much as I love music, I would hope, you know, I I always hope that my kids would love music and and pick up, yeah, stuff. You know, I picked up the trumpet when I was in fourth grade and I, and I missed it, but I absolutely loved it. But it's just really cool to have those moments with Hannah, where if it's her and I, like, I mean, she loves to listen to my music and sometimes. You know, she'll have on the radio that my wife or my daughter turn on a vehicle, and she'll say like, "No radio, just just Dada's music." And I'm like, "Oh God, <laughs> just I'm gonna have to pull over because I'm gonna cry right now because you made me so darn happy." So, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. But, anyways, Wayne, thank you, thank you, thank you so very much for coming on here, man. You have. You've made my my podcast <laughs> uh, list just so wonderfully great with this interview, and just man, it's been just a wonderful time to talk to you and just kind of get your, um, you know, I loved hearing about your travel just as much as I did about your, um, you know, about your musical endeavors. And and again, folks, if you haven't heard me say this enough, if you haven't heard Two Ghosts, it is on most, I think, if not all, the streaming. Um, streaming applications, but more more importantly, go out and buy it. It's on iTunes. I mean, you can order it through. I think you have it through Bandcamp, correct? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and like he said, he's going to have the Lassie Foundation stuff up. There's um, there was a couple shows that the Prayer Chain did what last year, I think. Uh, tw- I think it was twenty eighteen. Okay, can't remember yeah. when it was, mm-hmm. but but yeah, there's a there's a new live album of um uh when we played in nashville um uh and uh yeah that's up on Bandcamp right now actually. yeah just just uh, went up nice so anyways folks man dig into it support our local artists support artists all over the place um they can definitely use it 
in yeah, these for sure. wonderful trying times of the COVID. So, yeah. Again, Wayne, thank you so very, very much, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it, you know, so much. And thank you so much for the, your support over all these years. It's so rad. It's very, very humbling. I really appreciate it. It's very, very generous oh, of you. You bet. You bet. We, you know, we appreciate it, man. So thank you very much for uh, for letting us share in your gifts. Cool. Thank you so much. All right. Good, sir. Well, you have a wonderful rest of your night. And thanks again, Wayne. You too. All right, let's talk soon. Sounds good. All right, bye bye. You were listening to the Travel is Dangerous podcast. I'm your host, Michael. That was Wayne Everett. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I got some more great guests coming up as well. So thank you again so much. You guys have a have a great rest of your night, day, whatever it is. And uh, thanks again for for just even listening in.